This morning we continue our studies in the book of Colossians, and we've been in this section dealing with domestic responsibilities and relationships in the home for some weeks, and uh, we continue now in a new part of that section in Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 to chapter 4 and verse 1. So please open in your Bibles to this section of Paul's letter to the church, that young church, that relatively new church there in Colossae in this remote area, and yet they needed God's word and directions for them, as do we here in New Jersey and wherever you are in the world, uh, perhaps watching this service online. Colossians chapter 3, verse 22, down through chapter 4 and verse 1. Paul writes, Slaves, in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, or literally in the flesh, or according to the flesh, not with eye service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Masters, Grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. I'd like to also ask you to turn over to Ephesians, to that uh, parallel passage, the sister letter of this uh, letter to the Colossians. And in Ephesians chapter 6, there are words again to slaves and masters, which are very similar but slightly different to those which we have just read, and it's good for us to put the two next to each other and keep them in mind. Ephesians 6, verse 5. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service, as men-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters, do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him." Let's pray and ask for God's help as we begin this section of Paul's letter to the Colossians, directions to families and those in households, and to workers and employees, we can say, in our day as well. Let's ask for God's help. Our Father in heaven, as we approach this passage, we need wisdom, we need guidance, we need help from on high, that we would take these words delivered in a context strange to us from some nearly 2,000 years ago, in a political climate different from ours, in a society structured somewhat differently from ours. And we ask that you would help us now then to transfer and translate these directions to our day and our needs and apply them to our hearts so that we might live pleasing to you. 
This is all our desire. This is what we earnestly ask from you, that you would mold us and shape us and make us those who walk and live pleasing to you. Answer our questions along the way as well, we ask. We commit these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm well aware as we begin this topic that the very first word, both in Ephesians and in Colossians, in the version that I read, is something of a shock word in our society today. This word, these passages begin with the word slaves. Slaves, be obedient to your masters according to the flesh. There's a lot of emotional baggage connected with, these, with this word. And the question comes to us, comes to the mind of many, what? Does the Bible support slavery as an institution? In a day when statues that have stood for a hundred years or more are being toppled because the person depicted was a slave owner, uh, well, should we topple the Bible? Is a question that may come to many minds. And of course, the answer is no way. But we ask why. Why does the Bible speak of slaves? Why does not the Bible, when it speaks of slaves, come right out and say, slavery is an evil institution and should never be? Which is what some would want it to say. Why does the Bible speak of slavery in such terms as if it were an accepted institution? Well, we have to recognize when we approach this topic, when we approach this passage, that the Bible, uh, and let me just say, before I get any further, I'm not going to answer all the questions this morning. In fact, what I propose to do is really plunge into the text, see what the text does say, and then come back to that question. But let me give you a short answer, because that (laughs) that question may distract you from hearing anything else I say this morning. Okay, so I want to give a short answer. And here's the short answer. The Bible was revealed in a world in which slavery was an existing and it was at that time an accepted institution. One commentator that I read estimated or quoted an estimate that slaves made up perhaps one third of the population of the Roman Empire. Imagine that one out of three people that you meet on the street was a slave. It was an accepted, it was an existing institution. Many households had slaves. They would do that, those household chores and free the household heads, the family, from such menial tasks. Uh, many, of course, did not own slaves. Jesus and the apostles, there's no record that they owned slaves. There's nothing said about them having slaves. And of course, our Lord Jesus, being the son of a, a peasant, a carpenter, uh, his family had no slaves. In fact, the Jewish people were, generally speaking, an oppressed people at the time and not on top of the world. And so uh, many in that day had slaves, as did, by the way, some 600 years later, Muhammad 
owned slaves. But uh, Jesus did not. Now, uh, so we're speaking, when, when Paul wrote this letter, he was speaking to those who were both overseers and underlings, who were both masters and slaves. They were there in the church in Colossae, in the church in Ephesus, in no doubt all of the churches in the Roman Empire. Uh, in our day, we do not have slaves. Why? Because, and keep this in mind, it was Christians who read their Bibles who agitated against the institution of slavery. Slavery ended in the United States of America January 1, 1863 with the Emancipation Proclamation. Slavery ended in Saudi Arabia, the heart of Islam, in 1962, nearly 100 years later. And so, for those who say, well, Christianity supports slavery, keep this in mind. It was Christians who brought about the abolition of that institution. Well, I pass on now. There's the short answer. The Apostle Paul didn't come right out and say this is an evil institution. It was an accepted institution, and his goal, as is mine this morning, was to direct Christian people how we are to live in the situation in which we find ourselves. How can we please God in 2020 with COVID and all the other mess that we're in? How could they please God in the year, what, 50 or so, I don't have my chronology exactly right, perhaps here in Colossians, but roughly 50 AD. How could they please God in their situation? That was Paul's concern and ours as well. So now we come to 2020. It's interesting that, uh, what shall we say, one of my least favorite commentaries that I do read anyway, uh, it, it said, it made this statement, let me quote, Paul's counsel on slaves and masters has no contemporary significance in our culture. I hope you're shaking your head and saying, what? No contemporary significance? So we tear this page out of our Bible and say, well, that's useless. Of course not. We do not perhaps have slaves and masters, but we do have employers and employees. We do have underlings and overseers. We do have business owners and workers, and the principles apply. In fact, let me say by way of introduction still, that what we have in this passage or these two passages is a Christian work ethic, which is sadly lacking in present-day America, and which is greatly needed if our country, and indeed if the world, is to see anything like a productive and useful uh, situation in that society. And so this is not hopelessly outdated. All Scripture is inspired and profitable, and we need the work ethic which is proclaimed to us in these verses. And so as we look at these verses, back going back to the Colossian account, the Colossian letter, 
uh, as we look at these verses, what we have, first of all, and we're going to speak to the, uh, the slaves, first of all. Lord willing, in the subsequent weeks, we would come to the masters. But first of all, then, there's the duty of Christian slaves, verse 22. Secondly, the manner of Christian labor, because he, he, after using the word slaves there, he speaks of service, he speaks of work. So the manner of Christian labor. And then thirdly, the motives of Christian labor. So those are the three things that I hope to cover this morning. All right, so first of all, then, the duty of Christian slaves, all right? And you could substitute workers, the duty of Christian workers. He puts it this way, very blatantly, very plainly, very straight. Slaves, in all things obey those who are your masters. And I don't know why the version here paraphrased, whereas in Ephesians it did not paraphrase. Obey those who are your masters according to the flesh. So what's the command? The duty? Obey your masters. Now, as we saw with the direction to children back in verse 20, children, be obedient to your parents in all things. Here it is, slaves, be obedient to your masters according to the flesh in all things. Obey. So in other words, whatever the master said, the slave was to do. When the master said, prepare my food, the slave prepares his food. When the master says, plow the far field, he would go out and plow the far field. When the master says, shine my shoes, he gets out the polish and the brush and he shines the master's shoes. Do what the master says. His answer was to be like the marine grunt. Sir, yes, sir. If you have marines here, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, That was his response. Whatever your master says, obey. Do it. Well, there's the basic duty. But notice a couple things before we move on. Obey them in all things. Now, that's clear in the text. In all things. In other words, whether you feel like it or not, whether you like the command, whether you agree that it's a good priority for your time to do that thing which he commands or not, uh, whether it's on your priority list, on your desired list, no, all things. You do what the master says. Now, of course, we hasten to add that there is an implied exception And it's implied even in the very text. Read the rest of the verse. Obey those who are your masters according to the flesh. Ah, there's another master according to your spirit. Not with eye service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Now, if your master tells you to do something, your earthly, fleshly master, which in your fear of the Lord, you know, is going to violate his law because you fear the Lord more than you fear your earthly master. You're not going to do what he says. Fearing the Lord. Furthermore, it goes on to say, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord. And your master tells you to do something which would violate God's law. You say, how can I do that for the Lord? I'm not going to do that because I can't do it for the Lord, not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you receive the reward of the inheritance, it is the Lord Christ 
whom you serve. And my Lord Christ would never tell me to do such a thing. And I'm not going to do it. And so there is, in the text itself, a very clearly implied restriction and limitation to this all things. Think of Joseph, whose boss-ass, if you will, gives him a command. You know the account in the book of Genesis. Mrs. Potiphar says to Joseph, in an imperative mood, come, lie with me. Well, there's an order. And what is Joseph, the slave's response? He was bought with Potiphar's money. What is his response? How can I do such a thing and sin against God? And so there is the restriction. Obey them in all things, that is, all things lawful. Just do it, what they say. All things lawful. But then... There is this further qualification that I've alluded to. In all things obey your, those who are your masters according to the flesh. Remember, Christian slave, that that master is only your master according to the flesh. All right, maybe he plucked down some shekels, plunked them down on the table, and purchased your flesh, but he has nothing over your soul. They do not own your soul. And here is, if I may get ahead of myself just a little bit, here is the first hint that the institution of slavery is doomed. Those who own you only own your flesh, as it were. And they cannot. They have no power over your soul. And so, remember, who is it that owns your soul, brethren? We sang earlier in that hymn by Francis Havergal, Jesus, Master, whom I serve, purchased thine alone to be by thy blood, O spotless lamb. He purchased our souls, yes, he purchased all of us with his precious blood. Jesus, Master, whom I serve. And there is the first nail in the coffin of the institution of slavery. I am owned by another who bought me with more than shekels, who bought me with his precious blood. And I cannot surrender, therefore, my conscience to you who plunked down some shekels to buy my few years of service on this world. And so, as we apply this now to our situation, it's very different. You are not bought by your boss. You didn't sell your soul to the company store, I trust. You, perhaps, when you entered into employment, signed a contract, as I did when I worked in an office, non-disclosure, certain secrets of the company. I would not, if I went to work somewhere else, I wouldn't share those secrets and so on and so forth. I would give at least two weeks' advance notice if I was going to leave the... You signed a contract, of employment, but they did not buy you. So how then, it was that commentary right that this is nothing to our day? No, it tells you that if you entered into employment with a master, with a, well, boss, let's call him, uh, 
then you do what he says. As long as it's within the stipulations of your contract, he is hiring you, he is paying for your service, and so he's the boss. He tells you what to do, and you say, sir, yes, sir, except, of course, if it's unlawful, it's in your job description, you do it. And even if it's maybe stretching your job description, he's the boss. And so you do it. You don't have the mentality of so many in our day. And this is part of the problem with uh, the, the uh, lack of a work ethic. It's not my job. It's not my job. I'm not going to touch that. That's not my responsibility. So things fall apart. No, we do our work. Okay? Now, even more importantly for our day, I believe, is the second, or are the second and third major points here. We come now to the second. That is the manner of Christian labor. The manner of Christian labor. And here we have two negatives and three positives. He says, all right, so slaves, in all things obey those who are your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service. Now that's a good literal translation of the text. My version paraphrases a little bit, not with external service, but literally not with eye service. It's a compound word. The apostles slammed together the word for eye and the word for dulea, service as a slave. Labor work as a slave. Don't do it just for the eyes. And you know what that means. You know, the boss is there, he's looking, and so you work hard. You get your broom, you know, sweep the floor. Oh, the boss is here. And then the boss goes away, and uh, you know, uh, the cat's away. You know what happens, right? The mice will play. And so will the employees. The boss is gone. I heard a story, which is, I think, a very good illustration of this from another preacher. Some, oh my, it's 30 years ago or more. Um, there was uh, a road being built in Tanzania, or Tanzania, however you want to pronounce that country, uh, when it was a German colony. And the overseer was a German. Yeah. Very strict. And he had the workers, and he had a quota of work. How many uh, meters, I guess they would have said even in that day, they needed to accomplish to finish in a day. And so while he was there, he would keep them at the work. He would, and all they had was manual tools, shovels, and picks. And so he's getting them to work. And one day, he had to go away. So the overseer, the uh, master is gone. And guess what? Very little work got done that day. He came back and he was surprised that they didn't meet their quota. They were very far from it. They'd only done, in fact, just a very little bit. Now, it so happened that this overseer had a glass eye. And so the next time he had to go somewhere, he said, ah, I know what I'll do. He took out, in their presence, while they're watching, he took out his glass eye and put it on a tree stump. He said, ah, I am going away, but you will be watched. <laughs> and when he came back at the end of that day, they had done more than their quota. <laughs> I think you can understand why. Well, he said, ah, this is good. I know what I will do. So he thought, maybe... It's better if I'm gone. 
So the next day, he took out his glass eye, put it on the stump and went away. And he came back and guess what? They had done nothing. What's going on here? And he looked over at the stump and somebody had snuck up behind the eyeball and put a hat over the stump. Not with eye service. You get the idea. Well, the boss is watching or his eyeball is watching. We better work hard. No, brethren, that is not the work ethic of a Christian. If the boss is watching, I'll work hard. If he's gone, I'll slack off. No, no, no. Not with eye service. And we'll see why when we come to the positive, why eye service is wrong. But he adds one more negative, and that is not as men pleasers. Again, it's a compound word, men pleasing, not man pleasers. And you know what that means, I think, pretty clearly. Paul had said of his own apostleship, his work as an apostle in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 10, where the two words are used, the words that are made into this compound word. And in Galatians 1 verse 10, Paul writes of his gospel ministry. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? Am I a man pleaser? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a doulos, a slave of Christ. And so we are not to be men pleasers in our work. We're not to, as it were, Butter up the boss, seek to please the boss, get the boss's favor so that he'll give us a raise. He will uh, promote me. He will uh, be in my favor. I'll have him as my backer. Uh, in uh, the Philippines, MBA means my backer. Oh, I have a backer. <laughs> uh, that will give you a promotion if you have an MBA. If you have a backer in your job, well, you want to butter up the boss so you get him behind you and you get a rapid promotion? That's men-pleasing. That's not the motivation for Christian labor. Not to get a reward for self. Of course, ultimately, men-pleasing is self-pleasing, seeking to promote self. Rather, now let's look at the positives. And there are three, which is capped off with a kind of summary one. Look at the text again, Colossians 3. Uh, don't be a eye servant, a man pleaser, rather with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Singleness of heart, literally. Singleness of heart, of soul. You have a soul, a heart that is sincere. You're not trying to please the boss and please yourself and please whoever's watching. You are trying to please one single person, being the Lord your God. Your single heart is set on Him with singleness of heart. Not double-tongued, not double-minded, not uh, pleasing this person, that person, whoever's watching, but singleness of heart, fearing the Lord. Now, here's the ultimate motive. And we saw this in Ephesians as well, fearing the Lord. Okay, in Ephesians it said, obey your masters with fear. Who's the master you fear above all? In terms of godly fear, in terms of reverence and awe, it is the Lord who bought you. 
It is he whom we serve. Your eye is not on the boss, if he's here or not, but on the one whose eye is in every place. Think of that. Okay, here this morning, you're awake. Your mind wandering? God knows. The eye of the Lord is in every place. The workplace. Home place. Recreation room. The eye of the Lord is in every place. Beholding the evil and the good. Fearing the Lord. Whatever the boss does, whatever the boss asks, whatever the boss requires... He's an underboss. The big boss is always here. And that's the true and living God. And it is him. It is he that I serve. And so, therefore, the third positive in our work ethic, the work manner, is, going back to Colossians 3, whatever you do, do your work heartily. Now, I think all of the English versions I consulted translated it that way, but it is literally from the soul. Do your work from the soul. Put your soul into it. In other words, heartily. Why? Because you're serving the Lord who bought you, not with shekels, but with precious blood. Peter puts it this way, 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, not shekels or dollars, from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And what is he saying this for? Why, why is he saying it now at this point, knowing that you are redeemed with blood? Going back to the previous verse, 117 in 1 Peter, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. He gave his life's blood for you on Calvary, and you're going to slack off? You're going to coast? You're going to dilly-dally? He gave all he had, gave his life's blood. Therefore, conduct yourselves in fear. Therefore, do your work heartily as for the Lord who bought you, whose you are and whom you serve. Do it for him. And therefore, the end of verse 24, there's a kind of a summary statement for all of this. And here's, if, if you forget everything else I say this morning... Brethren, remember this, when you go to work tomorrow, it is the Lord Christ whom I serve. I'm not working for the master every day. I'm working for the master. I'm working for my Savior. It is the Lord Christ whom I serve. Doesn't that change everything? Doesn't that put a whole new spin, if you will, on your employment? I'm not just uh, working because I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. It's not just because you got to pay the bills. It's not just because you got kids in college. It's not just because there's, you want to buy new toys. It's because you serve the Lord Christ. To quote a poem by George Herbert, 
It's, it's a well-known poem. You've probably come across it one time or another without knowing perhaps where it was from. George Herbert said, and I'll just quote a couple of the stanzas of it, Teach me, my God and King, in all things thee to see, and what I do in anything, to do it as for thee. A servant with this clause, to do it as for thee, makes drudgery divine, who sweeps a room as for thy laws, makes that, the room, and the action, fine. You're going to have a better floor swept cleaner if you're doing it for him than if you're just doing it for the boss, who maybe will come in with a white glove. Oh, I found a speck of dirt. Oh, you do it for the master. You do it for the savior. You do it for him who loved you and gave himself up for you. It reconditions all our work. And so what kind of work do you do? What manner? As unto the Lord and not for men. Do it heartily. Now, what are the motives? And I'll, I do want to finish this morning. So briefly, looking at the last couple of verses here in chapter 3, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, verse 24. So positively, there's a positive motivation. The Lord is going to reward me. And what reward? The inheritance. Now, some people complain and say, well, now, wait a minute, that's a mercenary motive. That's serving because you're going to get something. That's quid pro quo, something for something. And, and of course, we, we know that what we receive from God is grace. It's all grace, right? Well, salvation is all of grace from beginning to end. And if we had to put one stitch in the garment of our righteousness, we would fail. No, we're saved by grace. That's clear. But he does say, from the Lord, we know this, it's a known fact, you receive the reward of the inheritance. Now, a couple things about that, an inheritance. Did you kids, you know, if you ever, usually older people, would you get something when your parents pass away? Did you earn that? Did you pay them for it? Did you do something so that they put you in their will? Well, I was a good boy. Uh, it's an inheritance. You're a kid, you're a son, you're a daughter, you get it. It's yours. Well, all children of the living God get the inheritance. But because he is so gracious, he not only gives us that inheritance, which is, is what we get by sons, not that we deserve, but we get it because we're sons, he also adds rewards. There are rewards. Those who labor much, they will be put in charge of many cities, the Savior said. Those who do little, they get little. There is reward. Yes, salvation is by grace, but judgment is by works. That's what Paul says in the letter to the Corinthians. He says, we must all receive, we must all rather appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And so, there's a reward. Work hard. You know what? Maybe your boss will notice what you do and give you a raise. Maybe he won't. 
Maybe your immediate supervisor will claim the credit for what you did and he'll get the raise. Does that ever happen? It does. And you don't get the reward. You say, man, it's not fair. Let me tell you, the Lord Jesus is 100% fair. You will get the reward of the inheritance. And so work hard for him. <laughs> and here again is another nail in the coffin of slavery. Because you work for the Lord and you get what? An inheritance. Do slaves get inheritance? No. No. Maybe the master, if he was a good slave, maybe the master will grant some freedom. Maybe the master gives. But slaves don't inherit it. It's the son. We read even in the scriptures. Who gets the inheritance? The slave. No. But here, these slaves, bond slaves of Christ, get the reward of the inheritance. Earthly slaves, maybe you don't get much. Slaves of Christ, you get what? Life, life, eternal life in the presence of God forever and ever. Is that just some sort of pie in the sky? No. It's real as the seat you're sitting on, as the pulpit I'm banging on. You can bank on it. You get, for eternity, the reward of the inheritance. And so, do your work for Christ. Keep your eye on the Lord. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. What does verse 1 say of this chapter? If you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. And so we come now to the end of the chapter and he says, it's the Lord Christ you serve. Keep your eyes on him while you're working. Well, even if you're a slave, keep seeking the things above. They're real. And they're coming for sure. But then there's the negative uh, motivation that he gives also in verse 25. The converse, if you do get a reward for hard work, what about the opposite? He who does wrong, verse 25 will receive, and, and the version paraphrases because you almost have to, the consequences of the wrong. Literally, he who does wrong will receive the wrong. <laughs> you know, the saying in English, what goes around comes around. You do bad, it's going to come back on you. Well, that's what Paul is saying. You're going to get not just as a natural consequence, but as God's judgment. He who does wrong will receive the wrong that he's done. And that without partiality. Now, it's very interesting that back in Ephesians, this statement, also sandwiched between the uh, word to slaves and words to masters, goes this way. Knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free, without partiality. So you do good, you get it back. You do bad, you get it back. Well, that's judgment. That's as God looks at your life. It's merely the fact that your life will reflect if you're genuinely saved or not. If any man's in Christ, what is he? A new creature. Will that be seen? Must be seen. And if he's a new creature, he's going to work not for the boss on earth merely, but he's going to work for his heavenly master. Will that be seen? It should be seen. Must be evident. And so, without partiality, without favoring rich or poor, master or slave, 
this is sandwiched in between the directions to slaves and masters, as I believe many commentaries get it right there, because it applies to both. Right now, we're going to apply it to workers. There's a reward and there's judgment. Let's do our work for the Lord. Let's do it from the heart. Let's do it from the soul. Let's do it cheerfully. Let's do it eagerly. Let's do it not with eye service. Let's do it fearing the Lord. And so as we wrap up this morning, what does this have to say? Christian workers here. That's really all of us, because maybe you're retired, you're working. Maybe you're at home, a mom at home, you're working. (laughs) Believe me, you're working. How are you working? If you're a Christian this morning, you ought to have as your goal to please him. This is our ambition, Paul said, 2 Corinthians 5, 9. Therefore also we have as our ambition, whether at home in the body or absent and with the Lord, to be pleasing to him. As you go to work, is that your ambition? And a secondary ambition under that or a consequence of that ambition ought to be that Christians in your workplace ought to get the Employee of the Year Award. Why? Because everybody else is slacking off. Everybody else is working just the bare minimum to please the boss. Or if they're working hard, it's to get a raise. It's to please men. You're working for a, You're marching to a different tune altogether. Pleasing the Lord. Do your work heartily as unto him. There's the Christian work ethic. Remember, take this little phrase home. Take it to work. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Who's your boss? The Lord Christ. Whew. That makes your work a different, different thing altogether. It's not looking for Friday, living for the weekend. Every day, I'm working for my master, the Lord Christ, who loves me and gave himself up for me. But then, just as we close this one last word, notice here in this text, the Lord rewards, the Lord gives judgment. He does wrong. And remember, as I said, the eyes of the Lord are in every place. Dear friend, here this morning, you may not like this fact, but it's a fact all the same. Facts are stubborn things, somebody once said. The Lord sees you. And here, even as we apply this passage to your work ethic, maybe you're a son or daughter at home and your parents give you a job to do and then they go away. What's your work ethic? Do the minimum so that when they come back, you're not going to get your hide tanned. That's not a good work ethic. And here God is exposing your heart. And it's falling short of his glory. It's sin. And that exposing of your heart and of your motives and of the intentions of your heart by his word. That's saying you need a savior. That's saying you need to turn from that sin. You need renovation. You need a heart change. You need to be in Christ Jesus and be made new. Here's the good news. 
The God who said these things is the God who sent his son to save. Is he a good master? And if I were to take a poll and ask people verbally to respond, you would hear it, friends. That those who in this room were Christians would say to a man and a woman and a boy and a girl, is Jesus a good master? Amen. The best there is. Billy Bray, that Welsh preacher, I've mentioned him before. There was one day, he was out harvesting his potato crop. And potato after potato, he pulled out of the ground and they were rotten. And as it were, the devil came along and hinted in his ears, as the devil does suggest things to our mind in temptation, said to him, huh, what kind of master do you serve? Look at what reward he's given you. A bunch of rotten potatoes. That's what you get from your master. Come back and serve me again. And so Billy Bray, this preacher, laborer, coal miner, farmer from Wales, was put to a stand. Yeah, this is what I get, a bunch of rotten potatoes. But then wait a minute, he said. What did I get when I served you? An aching head and problems every day. What have I gotten from my master? Grace, amazing grace, a new heart, a new life, pardon, acceptance, an eternal hope. Forget about it, Satan. Even if I get rotten potatoes, I get a lot more from my master than I ever got from you. And friends here this morning, you're serving a bad master. And all he's given you is headaches and heartaches. And that's all you'll ever get. And judgment in the end. You come to Christ. Pardon, acceptance, forgiveness, a new heart and new life. He's a good master. Turn from your sin and come to Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we consider these words written to slaves some nearly 2,000 years ago. We are not slaves. We thank you that that institution is gone. We are free, but we want to use our freedom not for license to sin. We want to use our freedom to serve you. And so we ask that you would take this word home to each heart that you would pardon us for our laziness, our sloppiness, our carelessness in our work, and help us to do everything, whether it's sweeping or whether it's crafting uh, something very fine, whether it's doing engineering or medicine or whatever work you've given us to do here under the sun, that we would do it as unto you from the heart that we would remember this simple phrase, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve, and that that would move us and motivate us and stir us to excellence in all that we do. But those who are far from you, who are serving for money, who are serving to please men, who are serving for their own ambition, convict them. Show them the ugliness of their hearts and reveal to them the Savior who changes hearts. So grant new hearts today and draw men, women, young and old 
to yourself. We plead in Jesus' name. Amen.